How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My passion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again completely destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now from Matthew chapter 2. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the mother, child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come, help us to sit here with humility and an open heart to hear your word. May we be built up and edified and shown the nature and shape of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior from sins, uh, the, the Son who you called out of Egypt. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a pretty young boy, I conspired with a few friends to make a bonfire of a sort in our complex where we lived. This was not a good decision because one of my friend's moms ratted on us and my dad's face appeared from around the corner where we were in the process of setting the fire. And by the look on his face, I knew I was in quite a bit of trouble. And as we were walking back down the hill towards our house, He said, what I'm about to do is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I remember thinking, I highly doubt that. (laughs) But he probably did mean it, uh, that in the sense that he didn't really take joy in what he needed to do. And this internal conflict of knowing you need to discipline your children is probably something familiar to those of you who have kids. You love your kids. And yet you need to discipline them, sometimes quite firmly and harshly, for their misbehavior. Well, the prophet Hosea gives us a window into the internal dialogue of God as father when faced with his son Israel, who has been not just misbehaving, but deeply sinning against God. He needs to decide what to do with this people who have violated their covenant promises to him. And at the same time, we see a foreshadow of God's saving plan through Jesus Christ. So our text uh, contrasts this rebelliousness of Israel as a disobedient son with the love of God, who is a faithful father. This analogy is between that of the, the relationship between a father and a son. Now, this refers back to the institution of Israel itself. With the giving of the law at Sinai after God had taken his people up out of Egypt in the Exodus. 
Now, this exodus became the very basis of the giving of the law, because if you've, uh, which we have many times here read Deuteronomy chapter 5, before the giving of the law, God gives a preamble, and he says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. And so this imagery of father and son is really fitting for the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made between God and his people at Sinai. Now, God delivered his people out of Egypt, and he adopted them as his own people. There was nothing in them as a nation that should deserve God choosing them, and yet he did in his fatherly love for them. Now, in the ancient Near East, there's an understanding concerning fathers and sons that there are obligations that fathers have towards sons, but obligations as well for sons towards fathers. Fathers would protect them and give them an inheritance, and sons would honor and obey their fathers. And what this teaches us is this kind of obligation, mutual obligation, is actually not an enemy of love. It's not mutually exclusive with love. Those of you who are married know this, that when you took vows to care for one another, to love and obey and to serve and to self-sacrifice, these commitments you made to one another don't hamper love. In fact, they provide the context in which love flourishes. And this is what we need to understand in God's covenant with Israel as well. God has an obligation as a father, which he fulfilled. In verse 1, he has called his son out of Egypt, which was the land of their bondage and slavery. And in verse 3, is a beautiful image. Like a father walks his child along on his feet, holding his arms up, so the Lord has done with Israel. He's nurtured them. Because Israel couldn't stand on its own among the foreign nations who are much greater, much wealthier, much more powerful. But God held the hands of the tribes of Israel and guided them how to live. And in verse 4, we see that God took the yokes, which referring to the slavery that they were under in Egypt, he took them away and made them a free people. He nursed them and cared for them. He fed them, knelt down and fed them with manna from heaven when they were in the wilderness. So God has bound himself using cords of kindness, bands of love. He's bound himself to Israel in covenant love, promising that he would deliver them, nurture them, and protect them. God has fulfilled his end of the bargain. But did Israel reciprocate? Did the son honor his father? No, not at all. Rather, Israel, like a rebellious son, spat in the face of his father who loved him. Israel rejected God's authority and despised his fatherly care. In fact, verse 2 says, the more that God called them, the more they ran away. The more he reached out to them in love, the more they spurned him in disobedience. They were loved, chosen, called, and blessed, yet they were always opposed to God and just turning to other pagan gods. Instead of thanksgiving and offering worship to the God who saved them, they worshipped false gods and idols who could not help them at all. I'm sure some of you know the painful experience of dealing with a rebellious child. 
You've worked tirelessly your whole life and sacrificed to care for them, to provide for them, and devoted your energy and your love and your finances, and yet they have turned away from your instruction. So naturally, the question is, how can they do something like this? How can they do something like this? Well, surely they may need firm discipline to ensure they see the error of their ways. In our verse, uh, the following three verses, five to seven, Hosea recounts the consequences, God's discipline of them for Israel's apostasy. Uh, the beginning of verse five here should actually be translated, they shall, they shall return to the land of Egypt, not they shall not. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be their king. They will live under the rule of a terrible foreign king. Because they have refused to return to God. They refuse to repent of their idolatry. And so they will now suffer the consequences of living under a foreign king who is not their God, who does not love them, who is not their father. In other words, God is sending his people into exile. This is the worst of the covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28. God said, if you do not obey my commandments, my statutes that I've given you this day, this is what the consequences will be, the curses of disobedience. They will suffer military onslaught. If you look at verse 6, swords, meaning armies, will attack their cities, burning the protective locks of their gates, wiping away their security. Ultimately, Israel is going to suffer because of their counsels, their, their foolishness that they have turned to foreign false gods instead of to their Lord. Israel is so stiff-necked that they have reset their hearts to reject their father. But to ensure that they really learn their lesson, even while his people are languishing in exile, when they call upon his name, he will not answer them. In the same way that they have turned from God, he will now turn from them for a time leaving them to suffer so that they truly learn of their helplessness, danger uh, that they are facing and the foolishness of rejecting their father's discipline and love. Now, and what happens next is quite an interesting section of scripture because we have a, a very sudden turn in the tone and tenor. This is part of that internal dialogue, the conflict of God that he is thinking of between his love and his mercy and his holiness and his justice. In it, we're shown that God is contemplating his justice and his love. How does he, at the same time, hate sin and punish it and fulfill his promise to his people to love them and to be his God? And them to be his people. So the rhetorical question is, how can I abandon my people who I love? How can I make them like Adma and Zeboim? Now, these are cities that are synonymous with Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saying, how can I utterly wipe out my people that I love? How can I do this? So God is teaching us here that in God, there is both justice and mercy, righteousness and love. 
But how is this tension resolved? Well, we begin to see this in in verse 9. The people will be cursed with exile, but they will not be completely destroyed. That's how to translate it. I will not completely destroy Ephraim. Instead, he, he cannot obviously overlook their sin because he is God. He's not a man. He's not like a judge who can be corrupt and overlook the wickedness and sin of people and simply turn his back. No, he's not like that at all. He is God. He is holy. He's supremely just. And he must take every sin that has ever been committed to task. Or he would not be righteous. He would not be holy. He would not be just. He would be like the wicked pagan idols. Now, at the same time, he states... He will not come in the fiery day of his destroying wrath. Instead, he will exercise a degree of mercy in his restraint. That's at the end of verse 9. Although he is the God and not a man, the Holy One in his midst, he will not yet come in wrath. But the story doesn't end there. In verse 10, Hosea explains that there's going to be a new kind of exodus. God's people will hear the roar of their fierce king like a lion, and they will come running. If you think about it, though, this is a strange metaphor, because you would think that just as when a a dog barks or a lion roars, what happens? The birds disperse and they they fly away from the noise. But here in this uh, metaphor, the birds are going to come toward the lion. God's lion-like roar is a rallying cry, summoning his people to return from exile, victorious under his rule, his reign, his protection, and his love. Instead of being abandoned out there in exile, they are going to be returning to their homes from the far reaches of Egypt and the West. A promise sealed by the prophetic formula, thus declares the Lord. But notice the description of how Israel will return in verse 11. They will come back trembling. That's interesting. They will come back trembling instead of, think of the way that they were sent out into exile. They had calloused, hard hearts, seared consciences, souls that were bent on serving idols. But when they come back, they will come back not in their own counsel, but in the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom. And they will come back renewed with softened hearts. They will honor the Lord and revere him in his holy majesty as their loving father. In other words, God sending them into exile has knocked off their spiritual bondage to sin. They were under the yoke of idolatry, but they return softened to fear and obey the Lord. They will no longer seek after foreign gods, but they will serve the true and living God alone. This exodus, which has seemed like a very harsh discipline, that God thought, I cannot utterly wipe them out. It has been very harsh, but it ultimately is going to benefit God's people. Because they will move from 
foolish, hard-hearted people to wise and God-fearing children. But we must observe that God did not simply forgive Israel and then continue on as if they had not sinned. This is the premise of many false religions, that you can simply say, oopsie, I'm sorry. And then whatever God it is might either not care, or they might be the kind of God that overlooks sin and says, well, you're sorry, you're forgiven. That's the case with Islam, for example. One needs only repent, and one receives forgiveness. That means that the false God, the idol, Allah, does not punish sin, but simply overlooks it. God is not like that, for he is God and not a man, the Holy One in the midst of Israel. Yes, God deeply loved his people and promised to be their God and for them to be his people, but he is also holy. Therefore, redemption and restoration of God's people could only come about after God had punished their sin. His righteous burning anger is not like a candle who a light breeze can extinguish. It cannot be snuffed out by the elements or by offering money and trying to bribe God like a corrupt judge. Instead, what Hosea teaches us here is that God's salvation of his people comes after an accomplishment of his justice. Now, as Christians, we are the heirs of the ultimate exodus that is foreshadowed in this text, in Hosea's prophecy. In the gospel, God's elect are gathered from among the nations and drawn to the roaring cry of the Davidic king, the Lion of Judah, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. In his redeeming work, God gathers, adopts, and saves his people, his son, the true Israel. In other words, what God had promised to do for the people of Israel in this prophecy, he will also ultimately do, in one sense, again in the future. Now, you've heard me say multiple times before, and even in the last couple of weeks as we've dealt with some prophetic texts, that the way prophecy works in the Old Testament is that there's a literal sense to the prophecy. But there's also multiple reference, multiple things it can be talking about. So in, in this prophecy from uh, Hosea, a literal return from exile is in view. God has sent his people Israel into exile, and he will literally gather them again from exile. But so too is a spiritual return from exile that will be accomplished by God's true son, the Messiah. And it's Matthew, whose text we read there, in the birth narrative of Jesus that shows us what the ultimate fulfillment of this text is. An angel of the Lord commands Mary to flee to Egypt. He need, they need to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to search for her child to kill them. Of, of course, that's the reason to flee. But the ultimate reason is to fulfill God's word in Hosea's prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is an exact quotation to prove to us that Jesus is the true Son of God, the true Israel. But what that means then for us, being the other side of God sending his Son, Jesus Christ, means that we 
can gain great insight into the nature and the purpose of Jesus' ministry in light of this prophecy in Hosea. Firstly, there's two things to reflect on. Firstly, we should reflect on why judgment and redemption was necessary in the first place. See, Israel had sworn to obey God and serve him, and yet they were like an adulteress towards God. They violated their covenant and worshipped at the feet of chunks of wood and metal rather than at the feet of the living God. The people lacked righteousness because they did not fulfill the law and rather became deserving of curse and death. Therefore, what that means is part of Jesus' mission was to be a faithful servant of the Lord who offered a perfect obedience to the law that God requires. See, that's the nature of God's holiness is that it requires not a good person, but a perfect person who has perfectly obeyed the law. This is the greatest problem for humanity because of Adam's sin. None of us is perfect, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what this means for the the life of the Messiah, God's true son, is that Jesus is sent to live a perfect life. His righteous and holy life is lived on our behalf and counted to us by faith. And ultimately then, in God's eyes, we are blameless before him if we trust in Christ. We are accepted by God because of the very perfection of Jesus. And because Jesus' obedience to the law is perfect, we will never experience the fear of curse and judgment. Because what does God promise in the same chapter as he promises curses for disobedience? He promises blessing and life for obedience. And that is exactly why Christ was sent. So that's the first, that Israel had disobeyed and God sends his true son to obey on their behalf. Second thing we should reflect on is we need to understand the shape of the ultimate exodus. And that it must be the same as the shape of the exodus in this prophecy. What I mean by that is there can be no redemption and restoration without God first accomplishing justice. God's people could not be restored to him until they had first been cursed in exile. In order to save and bless his people, he had to first deal with their sin. And this is the other ground of salvation. Not just Christ's obedience to the law, but that God had to show up in wrath to execute his justice against sin. So the true son of God, who is called out of Egypt, must first face God's burning anger. And that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. In substitution for his people, he ransomed himself unto death and hell by being subject to the full wrath of God on the cross. And this is what we need to understand about the nature of what Christ's death means. Where we should have been abandoned, Christ was left alone on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
On the one hand, only a man could atone um, for sin of mankind, not some other creature. But on the other hand, only God himself could bear the force of his own wrath in judgment for the whole of his people. And that is why God sent his son to be the God-man, truly man and truly God. Only in this kind of redeemer could the love and the mercy of God meet the wrath and the justice of God to bring about the salvation of God's people. It's by this very suffering and death of Jesus and his resurrection to new life that God's people are redeemed and healed and restored and adopted and blessed with eternal life, never to face judgment. This is our Messiah. This is God's Son, who is born of the Virgin Mary, and who in his ministry, like God looking upon his sinful people, looked out upon the crowds and felt the same compassion, that his heart was moved as he looked on the sinful masses. And that is because his mission was to seek and to save the lost. Now, for those hearing this news, this great gospel and those who repent of their sins and trust in his son, Jesus, they will experience this greater exile. They will experience the forgiveness of sins and salvation through his name. Because God called out his son, Jesus, out of Egypt, he can call his sons, plural, out of the bondage of sin and death. So each of you today hearing this message need to reflect carefully on the implications. Because in Christ, we see the clear fulfillment of God's word through the prophet Hosea. This means that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and came to do exactly what God said he would do. That is why his own instruction to the people he looked at and preached to was, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So for those of you who have not trusted in him, who for whom he is not your father, you now know what is required of you. That you turn from your sin and embrace the righteousness and the life that comes from Jesus by trusting in him. And when you do so, you will receive all of his benefits and become his child, loved and with nothing ever to fear. For those of you who have already trusted in Christ, who are his children, you know that following Jesus' ascension, his ministry in your life continues by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and makes you willing and able to live wholeheartedly for God. Never again will you be like Israel, abandoning him for idols, but he will keep you in his will and his ways and the loving grip of his arms to serve and to fear him. And yet, even as we continue to sin because of the weakness of our flesh, awaiting the redemption of our bodies, because of Christ's perfect righteousness, God will not punish us. Instead, he will lovingly discipline us that we may enjoy communion and fellowship with him, even as we await his return. So until that day, he is the one who heals you, who walks you along 
as his small, helpless, beloved child, supplying all that you need, nourishing you with the word and the sacraments, and roaring as your protector, as, uh, with you as, your, as his son and with him as your father. And that is at the heart of the gospel and the Christmas message that out of Egypt, God called his son. Amen.